Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wooden. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an iHeart Original. When you watch a movie or a show on TV, whether you realize it or not, one of the first things you do is try to sort out who's the good guy and who's the villain. Hollywood frequently makes this pretty easy. Think about it. In Westerns, bad guys always wear black hats. In spy movies, they wear Nehru jackets and, I don't know, monocles. Or, you know, Nazi uniforms. Papers, Fraulein. We like our good and our bad predetermined, pre-cooked, like a microwave dinner. Tell me who to root for, tell me who to hate, and do it quickly, we say, because I'm in a hurry. Yeah, but that same simplicity, comforting as it might be, prevents us from truly understanding reality. And real-world events, just like real-world people, are much more complicated than what we see on the big screen. Or, for that matter, what we hear on a podcast. You know, Alex, I'm drawn to stories where the lines separating good and evil just aren't so clear, where there are no absolute good guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kids these days are calling it moral ambiguity, Ben. There it is. Our protagonist, Marine Corps Major General Smedley Butler, he's like that. He's got a lot of these blurred lines. We met him in the last episode, giving a speech to homeless vets in a muddy Hooverville. Now he's at home, miserable, bitter, and over the hill. I ought to suck you one for that, but look at me. You're not wrong. So that's Smedley. Hi. And this show is about how he ended up being one of the most important and most forgotten whistleblowers in the history of this country. He exposed a plot by the nation's wealthiest men to overthrow the President of the United States. But Smedley has a torrid backstory, too. It's one that reminds us that there are no true good guys. At least, not like in the movies. Wait, what do you mean I'm not a good guy? I'm one of the great gravelly-voiced American heroes, damn it. Defender and disseminator of democracy from sea to c**k-sucking face rabble-rousing shining sea. From iHeart Originals and School of Humans, this is Let's Start a Coup. I'm Ben Bullen. I'm Alex French. 
To bring you this story, we've done all the research, read the books, interviewed historians. But still, there are some big gaps in the historical record, and we'll never know exactly what happened. So in those gaps, we've had some fun. If it's so fun, how come I'm not laughing? This is episode two, A Man Most Michant. So during the prime years of Smedley's military career, right around the turn of the 20th century, the United States engaged in a unique brand of foreign policy. I guarantee you snooze through this part of high school history if your teacher mentioned it at all. Yeah, it's referred to as dollar diplomacy. In short, instead of expanding the empire by invading with military might, the U.S. used money as its primary weapon, taking control of a country's finances and forcing them to do what benefited America. It was supposed to be bloodless, but people always died. We have a friend named Jonathan Katz. Not too long ago, he wrote a fascinating book about Smedley Butler and the making of the American empire called Gangsters of Capitalism. You still need some bullets <laughs> in order for this to work. Because if you just try to do things with informal control, like there will be people who can use their connections within the country to establish more direct control over their own economy and government. So you need the threat of violence, and often you need actual violence in order to see this through. And Butler did that. Hey, listen, violence is just part of the gig. That's what it takes to be the second most decorated Marine in the history of the Corps. I got more medals than the Federal Reserve. Almost died from malaria, nearly drowned in Subic Bay, got shot in the face. You did? Yeah, well, not in the face, but a thigh wound ain't nothing to sneeze at. I couldn't can-can for a week. Yeah, that, that sounds tough. Yeah, but it was all for Uncle Sam. You see, when you sign up to serve America, you serve America by adhering to the chain of command. Well, we're going to find out soon enough what comes from that kind of logic, Smedley. All right, I can take it. Make with the flashback. Smedley's journey to gangsterism started in Philadelphia, but not just in any neighborhood. He's from Westchester, the ritziest, waspiest part of Philly, a child of extreme privilege. Smedley, put down thine lollipop. Mama, you'll get this lolly from my cold, dead hand. His mom was from a wealthy family. His dad, an attorney by trade, serves like 15 terms in Congress. Smedley went to a very exclusive private school called Haverford. He grew up a devout Quaker, and you know, they're supposed to be pacifists. Right, but when he's 16, the Spanish-American War captivates him. He's too young to enlist, so Smedley lies about his age and joins the Marine Corps, but... Like you said, Alex, Smedley is rich and connected, so being underage and inexperienced doesn't really matter. Yeah, he goes into the Corps as a second lieutenant, an officer. Youngest officer at the time, and according to my own internal polling, the third most adorable. So Smedley comes of age just as America began building its overseas empires, and he skyrockets through the ranks of the Marines. With the Marines, Smedley spilled blood in China, Nicaragua, Panama, Haiti, Mexico, the Philippines, Honduras. Often so American steel or oil or fruit companies could do business safe from those pesky indigenous people. You know, he's sounding less and less adorable, Alex. Sure is. Smedley set up client militias to suppress opponents of American foreign policy. He was the blunt instrument of American imperialism. His work was animated by a jaw-dropping racism and white supremacy. We'll get into all of that, but saying that he was a product of the age doesn't exactly explain away his views. Hey, 
I just served my country. It's not like the country can be racist. Yes, it can. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Uh-oh. What Smedley did in Haiti was horrific. Jonathan Katz worked in Haiti as a correspondent for the Associated Press. That's how he found out about this story. He first came across Smedley's name while digging into the American occupation of Haiti, which stretched from 1915 all the way to 1934. Haiti is an independent country. It had been independent since 1804. The only country in the modern world to be founded by a revolt by enslaved people. It's one of the most remarkable stories and one of the most remarkable countries in the world, just in terms of that history. In 1910, dollar diplomacy forced Haiti to start accepting U.S. financial control. The key American player here is a guy named Roger Farnham, one of history's great villains. He simultaneously served as VP of National Citibank of New York and the National Bank of Haiti and the president of Haiti's National Railway. Oh, and he was President Woodrow Wilson's principal advisor on Haiti. He leveraged those positions to create the conditions for an American invasion. This guy has Haiti's fate in his hands. If you're looking for the true definition of gangsterism, look no further. Uncle Sam wants control of Haiti because it sits on the path of every cargo ship heading from the east coast of the United States to the Panama Canal. It's a crucially strategic port, so Roger Farnham creates a pretext to invade. Or, if you prefer, he stages a heist. Here's how he does it. Right, Haiti's in debt to the U.S. Farnham uses this to try and take over the country. He comes up with a plan called, in a burst of humility, the Farnham Plan. The United States takes over Haiti's ports and claims all of the import-export money. With no income, Haiti needs funds to pay debt, but Farnham freezes 10 million francs sitting in reserve in the Haitian National Bank. And then Farnham tells Uncle Sam, Something has to be done to get this cash. The same cash, by the way, that Farnham himself is purposely withholding. So, guess what happens next? The Marines invade, including Smedley Butler. They waltz into the Haitian National Bank and steal half of the gold reserves and whisk them away to Wall Street. This sends politics in Haiti into a tailspin. The Haitian president is assassinated by his own people. And that revolt gave the Americans what they really wanted, a pretext for an occupation. By 1915, the U.S. installed a puppet president. The U.S. government called it the U.S. Occupation of Haiti with a capital O. And they're using it euphemistically because they're trying to differentiate themselves from a European power. They're like, this isn't the U.S. colonization of Haiti. We're not taking it. We're just going to occupy it for a little while. So Uncle Sam has control of Haiti's ports, a puppet president, an old smedley on the ground making sure everything is going to plan. Squashing insurgencies, killing what they call rebels, who stand in opposition to the American occupation. And one of the goals of the U.S. occupation is to allow American business to flourish there, right? And what is blocking them from doing this is the Haitian constitution. They say in their constitution that no foreigner can own land in Haiti, which is extremely inconvenient if you are Citibank. It's also a problem for any American corporation that wants to set up any kind of business there 
And that is in turn a problem for U.S. foreign policy, because remember, the goal is to make the world safe for American business. And so the Americans say, we are going to rewrite the Constitution of Haiti and put in a line that says anyone can own land, regardless of whether they're Haitian or not. And of course, Haitians don't like this. But there's seemingly one last line of defense, the Haitian parliament. And the Haitian parliament is also the body that would have to ratify this new constitution. And they are not going to ratify this constitution. Because this constitution is a big fuck you to all of Haitian history and Haitian self-identity. This is unacceptable to the Americans because doing things that are good for American business, it's just core to this mission. And so the American occupation decides to overthrow the Haitian National Assembly, to destroy the Haitian parliament. And who do they send to do this? But Smedley Butler. As you may remember, Smedley's nickname was Gimletai. Not in reference to the cocktail, of course, but because of his piercing gaze. Although I also like the cocktail. And Smedley wrote all about this in his book, Old Gimletai. Yes, in my book I recounted how the Haitians did everything they could think of to block the new American version of their constitution. So we needed the Haitian president to help us get rid of the pesky parliament. And we thought that would be easy since the Americans installed him in power in the first place. Well, the coward got cold feet and hid in his office. When Smedley found him, the president said he'd only dissolve the assembly if his five other cabinet members signed the order. But the cabinet members were hiding too. My driver brought two of them back by the neck. That gave us three cabinet members. We told the president that three's enough. Wait, wait. You kidnapped cabinet members? No, I sent a few of my men to find the cabinet members and ominously said, retrieve them. And then they did. So the word kidnapped is, is a little... the act of stealing, abducting, or carrying off a human being forcibly. Oh, get a load of the smart guy. You may have a dictionary, smart guy, but I've got a rolled up dictionary. Jesus Christ. That'll learn ya. You're not making a... Great case for your diplomatic skills, man. I did what needed to be done for the country. What's everybody's problem? After getting the president and his cabinet to sign the order to dissolve the National Assembly, Smedley goes to the assembly with 50 armed soldiers. They are armed, they load their rifles, and he says, I have, a, I have an order from the president, which we wrote, disband this assembly. And the head of the assembly, a guy named Stenio Vincent, says, no. <laughs> And then Butler says, please? Yeah, I was real polite with it, just like that. I said, please? And then the gendarmes cock their rifles, and Vincent realizes that like he and the other members of the parliament could very well end up dying at their desks. And so they agreed to disband it, and the Haitian parliament stays disbanded for 12 years. Butler orders all records of this destroyed, he gathers newspaper editors in, in Port-au-Prince and tells them not to print any details of this happening. So maybe this little incident brought me some unwanted attention and criticism. Sure, I wound up answering questions before a congressional committee. They hammered me with, under whose authority did you order the president of Haiti to dissolve the National Assembly? And I said, I can't remember everything that happens to me all day. I drink a lot of gimlets. After the Americans take over, our boy Smettles doesn't exactly cover himself in glory. 
he was in charge of constructing a national road system in Haiti. Except Haiti couldn't pay for the road building project because the U.S. had taken all their money. So Smedley revived an old French imperial law permitting the internment of citizens to perform forced labor. This came hardly 100 years after Haitian slaves revolted and won their freedom from their French colonial masters. Talk about a special brand of cruelty. Some 9,000 poor Haitians were forced to build those roads. It was later revealed that Smedley personally approved the use of chains and ropes to keep those laborers from escaping. That's right. He enslaved Haitians in their own country. When the project was complete, FDR wrote to Smedley congratulating him. Smedley's response, and we're quoting here, It would not do to ask too many questions as to how he accomplished this work. To this day, in Haiti, Jonathan Katz tells us, Smedley is remembered as among the most méchant, the most evil, the most corrupt of all the Americans. Which they clearly have a point. Smedley Butler led a violent takeover of another country. Not once, not twice. He did it over and over again, using military might to pave the way for American business across the planet. And he was celebrated for this back home, sort of like an early 20th century Captain America. Experienced coup leader. Could have been at the top of his resume. After the break, is coup leadership a perishable skill? And some really, really rich guys go shopping for the right man to lead their insurrection. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want you to close your eyes. Imagine we're back in the dark, smoky room. You mean that? impossible to get into club where the world order is charted the one from episode one yeah yeah nailed it indeed that exact dark smoky room we're back in the summer of 1933 the great depression lingers on 
But the New Deal is quickly reshaping America, offering almost instantaneous relief to throngs of unemployed workers. Relief? What is this bullshit? I'm paying 63% income tax. Oh, you know I would be if I didn't send all my loot to Switzerland. Oh, look, our anonymous evil plutocrats have returned. All these industrial regulations he wants to enforce? He wants to regulate child labor and wages. How dare he? I say let the children run free in our sweatshops. The New Deal is a massive redistribution of wealth from the rich, who are taxed heavily, to the poor and unemployed. Of course there are cries that Roosevelt is a socialist. Worse, a traitor to his class. Anyone who's vying for a 30-hour work week simply must be a communist. The New Deal meant that the old laissez-faire ways of not regulating business were over. Before, during the darkest days of the Depression, FDR's predecessor, Herbert Hoover, wouldn't even intervene to halt foreclosures. Yeah, like, why would I? But allowing the free market to rage uncontrolled wrought nothing productive. The New Deal broke with that tradition. So some very powerful people start to line up against the president, like William Randolph Hearst, media mogul. In the smoky room, we know him as Uncle Randy. Yes, yes, I hear Uncle Randy has an exact replica of the smoky room built into his Park Avenue place so he can machinate in the comfort of his own home. <laughs> Our legal department requires me to say that's probably almost definitely not true. Hearst actually did back Roosevelt in the beginning, but when he turned against the president, he went all out. Here's Hearst railing against the New Deal. The sooner this impudent, intrusive, despotic, discriminatory, and perhaps revolutionary system of taxation is repealed. And it's important to note, Hearst doesn't mean revolutionary as a good thing here. It's around this time, almost 20 years after hijacking Haiti's national sovereignty, a retired Smedley Butler gets a phone call. It's a hot afternoon in July of 1933. Pass me a gimlet, Ethel. I'm schwitzing. What a great wife. <laughs> Never says a word. A man from the American Legion called ahead to say someone was on their way to see him. Nothing ominous about that. A chauffeured Packard convertible pulls into Smedley's driveway. What have we here? This man is a wounded vet. He's short, jowly. He's in his 30s but looks decades older and he is dressed to the nines. Hello, Smedley. Jerry Maguire. No relation to the movie coming out in 63 years. Marine Corps, Connecticut. I fought in the Great War and left with a silver plate in my cranium. My wife said, you've always been hot-headed, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> That's a crappy joke. But come on in, Marine. They head back to Smedley's office. McGuire does the talking. Here's the deal, Smedley. Me and a couple pals need your leadership. Your... What's the word? Gravitas. We want to send you to the American Legion Convention in Chicago this September. Remember, like you said earlier, Alex, the American Legion is a massive veterans organization, but not just the sort of organization that, you know, sits around in clubhouses or sponsors little league teams. No, no. These were the guys who tried to get Benito Mussolini to come speak at their conferences. The Legion is frequently used by big business to violently bust up labor union demonstrations. What was that? 
What do you say? Nothing, nothing at all. So here's the proposal, Major General. You'll march at the head of a delegation. Once you get on the convention floor, the boys in your group will stage a protest demanding that the current leadership at the Legion step aside. In other words, a mini-coup. But it feels like a soft ask. And it also warrants mentioning that the President of the United States planned on attending and speaking at that Legion convention. Smedley thought this is all an oddball request, and cared one bit for the way big business put veterans out on the street as union busters. So he shuts McGuire down. No, I don't want to be involved. No, I have no plans to go to the convention. And no, I wasn't even invited. Which is fine, because I didn't want to go anywhere. That's that shithead Roosevelt what did that to you. The noise he has, keeping you off the list. You helped him get elected. But it's okay. There's a workaround. You'll march in with the Hawaii delegation. Come on, everybody likes Hawaii. So all of this seemed very strange to Smedley. He couldn't, for the life of him, figure out what this guy truly wanted. Smedley said no. Don't speak for me. I'll say no in my own fashion. <clears throat> no, thank you. McGuire finds his way to the exit. Goodbye. But a few days later, McGuire's back. Hello. I said no, thank you. Okay, forget the whole idea. Here's a better plan. You'll take a special train to Chicago with a couple hundred vets. During the convention, the boys will cause a ruckus. You'll be called to the stage and deliver this speech to save the day. That sound more fun? As he's saying this, McGuire pulls a couple typewritten pages out of his jacket. It's all about paying veterans their long-desired $2 billion bonus debt, and the speech specifically proposes paying these veterans in gold. Two billion in gold solves a lot of problems. Oh yeah, it's a heck of a carrot. And something to remember, because spoiler alert, folks, this becomes crucially important later, that gold part in particular. But Smedley thinks this is all a little fishy. Mm -hmm. For example, the whole problem with Jerry's idea of rolling in with a couple hundred veterans is there aren't many vets who can afford a train ride, let alone five days in Chicago. That may seem foreign to you, McGuire, what with your sharp clothes and chauffeured car. Or maybe it just didn't occur to you because of that plate in your head. My wife said you've always been hard- You said that one already! So again, Smedley said no to Jerry McGuire. Get lost! But McGuire can't seem to take no for an answer. Hello! Ugh! Throughout the summer and fall of 1933, McGuire keeps showing up. Yeah, and Smedley really didn't know anything about this guy. Didn't understand his true objectives. It seemed like... Maybe he was working for someone else. Like there was someone behind the curtain pulling the strings. So he starts asking some more questions. Who are you? Who do you work for? Did you know Mae West is 40? Doesn't she look great for 40? Answer the questions! He learns that McGuire is a $100 a week bond salesman, working for a guy named Grayson Murphy. For now, all you really need to know is that Murphy is a spy turned investment banker. And he is McGuire's boss. McGuire says Murphy wants to replace the group of financiers who run the American Legion with new leadership. And Smedley is the guy to do the job. Grayson Murphy also wants to see the vets get their bonus so they can refill the Legion coffers and Murphy can recover his loot. And if you haven't noticed, Alex, that's like the third different yet weirdly vague explanation McGuire is giving to Smedley. Mm -hmm. but, but there's a thread running through all of these propositions 
getting Smedley Butler motivated to lead and getting him in front of a convention hall packed with legionnaires. Fast forward a couple of months to September of 1933. Smedley's in Newark, New Jersey, addressing a reunion of the National Guard's 29th Division. McGuire shows up again at Smedley's hotel room. <sighs> Stalker alert. Yeah, get out of here, creep. No, no, Smedley, not at all. Just want to know if you've made arrangements to be at the Legion convention in Chicago. And Smedley gets all pissed off because this again. Buzz off. Once and for all, I'm not going. This is where it gets weird. McGuire pulls a wad of cash from his pocket and he starts tossing $1,000 bills on the mattress, one after the next. I counted 18 of those, McGuire, so that's somewhere on the order of lots of money. I don't know from math, but I know you're not the one pulling the string, so make with the boss man. Finally, Smedley gets what he wants, a meet with the people in charge. About a week later, he goes to the train station by his house and picks up a New York City banker named Robert Sterling Clark. Clark! Smedders, how nice to see you again. Turns out these two go way back. More than 30 years ago, Smedley and Clark served together in China during the Boxer Rebellion. Clark inherited a mess of cash, like 30 million bucks, from the Singer Sewing Machine Company. As we say in our family, put that in your sewing machine and stitch it. The other Marines called Clark the Millionaire Lieutenant, and Smedley never took him very seriously. But now... Did you read the speech my henchman, I mean good friend, McGuire left for you? The one about paying the veterans their bonus in gold? Sure did. I'd give it two giblets. And I'd give it three bobbins. So we agree. It's a hell of a good speech. Well, it better be. It cost a lot of money. This speech, it seems, has been lost to history. Oh, there goes my money. All we really know are three things. One, the speech was seemingly written by a muckety-muck at the biggest bank in America, John W. Davis. He's kind of a big deal. Former ambassador to England, Democratic nominee for president in 1924. He tried around 140 cases before the Supreme Court. The guy was legit. Two, these guys really want Smedley to read this speech to a packed convention hall of war veterans. Three, the essential thread of the speech is that the United States should return to the gold standard. Okay, remember how Alex and I said gold was important. This is our moment. Pay attention, folks, because we've got some explaining to do. The gold standard was a little piece of monetary policy that is key to understanding why the wealthy villains in the smoke-filled room hated FDR so, so much. When FDR arrived in office in March of 1933, the country was in the midst of a banking crisis. As banks all over the country failed, panicked investors pulled their cash, exchanging dollars for gold and locking it up in safe deposit boxes. But hoarding the gold meant that money wasn't flowing through the economy. To avert further banking system catastrophe and get cash flowing, Roosevelt closed all of the banks. He quickly signed an executive order for Americans to hand over their gold to the government at the going rate of $20.67 an ounce. Failing to do so was punishable by fines and imprisonment. And that made a lot of people, especially rich people, very, very angry. You got that right. You'll get my gold the same way you'll pry loose this cocktail from my cold, drunk hand. Our favorite plutocrats are back, and boy, you guys sound pissed. 
pissed isn't drunk or pissed isn't angry? Either way, the answer is yes. I bet. Because right after that executive order, Roosevelt announced he's effectively taking the United States off the gold standard entirely. Well, what am I supposed to do now? Count my silver coins? Yeah, silver's for poor people. I hate this. Roosevelt's top economic advisor had a theory that inflating the price of gold would increase the price of stuff like wheat, corn, and cotton. For Roosevelt, getting those prices to rise would prop up farmers, and that, to him, was the key to ending the Depression. Roosevelt started buying newly minted gold bullion at way above market prices, and doing so simultaneously devalued the dollar and inflated the price of gold. Ahem, the plan didn't work, smart man. In fact, the price of corn dipped 28%, cotton went down 13%, wheat fell by 21%. Aren't you proud of me, looking all those numbers up? The French, of all people, were horribly upset. Can I be honest? The French really wig me out when they get upset. All of a sudden they're like sacre blue and I'm like, calm down. All this angry Gallic talk of currency wars. Anybody who is anybody hated the plan. And they ain't lying. Roosevelt's monetary policy was the biggest news story of 1933. The New York Times offered daily coverage and opinion on the topic. The opinion being that the Times really hated Roosevelt's maneuvering. 9.4 out of every 10 economists hate this. I tell you, it's as though Roosevelt is running this economy like a drunken toddler. There's even a story out there that he sets the price of gold every morning whilst still wearing his pajamas. I mean, really. God bless it, it burns me up. I want to call him a dirty word. Don't do it. This is a family program. He's a... a Please don't say it. A currency manipulator. You can't see me, listeners, but my mouth is positively agape. Uh, thanks for your two cents, guys. You're welcome! So back to the speech Clark brought Smedley to read at the American Legion. It advocated for vets to be paid their bonuses in gold. Rather than just coming out and railing against Roosevelt's currency antics, the cabal had wrapped their true agenda in the flag. If the veterans got gold, it would be great PR, but it would also... More importantly, undercut Roosevelt's move away from the gold standard. Smedley saw right through this. He thought the speech had all the earmarks of big business propaganda. This has all the earmarks of... Yeah, what he said. Here it is in a nutshell, Smedley. I have $30 million. I don't want to lose it. I'm willing to spend half of the $30 million to save the other half. That's awfully scheming, Bob. And here I thought you were just some goofy sewing machine guy. I contain multitudes. As does my bank account. <laughs> Do you get it? <sighs> yeah. So Clark says the train will stop by to pick up Smedley en route. Once in Chicago, a suite of rooms has been arranged at the very fancy Palmer House Hotel in Chicago. Clark urges Smedley. Go out and make the speech, Smedley. It'll get us one step closer toward the return to gold, to have the soldiers stand up for it. But Clark, what the hell does a soldier know about the gold standard? You're just using them like they always get used. I'm gonna see no one uses them except to guard democracy. And maybe someday fill out the chorus of big band reviews with that up-and-comer Bob Hope. I see big things for him. Why do you want to be so stubborn? Wouldn't you just love to have someone else pay your mortgage? Keep your liquor shelf stocked? Clark! Yes, but the answer's no. Since Smedley won't budge, the millionaire lieutenant cooks up a new plan. May I see your phone? He asked to use Smedley's phone. No, I asked to use his phone. Never mind. Here you go. Thank you so much. Clark calls McGuire. 
Hello? And informs him that Smedley will not be attending the convention. He instructs McGuire to use the expense money to flood the Chicago Opera House, where the Legion is holding festivities. What, you mean like actually flood it? No, McGuire, you dolt with your thumb-like face. I want you to flood that opera house with hundreds of telegrams calling for a return to the gold standard. Make it happen, won't you? Oh, sure, boss. Damn right, Thummy. A month later, the American Legion holds its 15th annual convention in Chicago. According to the Chicago Tribune, some 300,000 happy and hilarious war veterans and their relatives were in town. That's about 50,000 more veterans than there are active soldiers in the standing U.S. military at the time. Right? Think about it. If a coup does occur, the U.S. government will be dangerously outnumbered. This is frightening stuff. In any case, FDR gives a big speech at the convention. Comrades of the Legion, I ask your further and even greater effort in your program of national recovery. You who wore the uniform, you who served, you who took the oath of allegiance to the American Legion, you who support the ideals of American citizenship, you I have called to the colors again. Smedley follows the convention in the papers. He notes with some amusement a deluge of telegrams delivered to the delegates and sees that the assembly passed a measure calling for a resumption of the gold standard. Ha! Well, I guess they did it. And that's the end of the story, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Roll those credits. Let's Start a Coup is a production of... Wait, 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 wait. Not quite credits, lady. There's more to our story. Look. Listeners, this wasn't about the American Legion Convention. What McGuire and his bosses really wanted was Smedley showing up and standing before hundreds of thousands of vets as their leader. But that didn't happen. So they had to find another way to convince Smedley to be on their side. In late August, Smedley agrees to a secret meeting at Philadelphia's Bellevue Hotel with his favorite Hollywood film star, Ruby Keeler. I'm a huge fan, Miss Keeler. Flattered you wanted to meet me. Hello? Oh no, it's Jerry Maguire. You tricked me. But since you're here, let's chat for a mo, huh? No, I said a hundred times I'm done with you, creeper. They have hot honey garlic shrimp. I'll give you 45 minutes. Okay, okay, so stepping in here, hang on. It obviously didn't happen like that, but Smedley, mm. man, the records show you kept meeting with McGuire. Why do you keep giving this guy your time? Well, all of this other stuff aside, he's a vet, and I've got a famously open door for vets. Plus, their shrimp here is like their thing. It's world famous. Smedley and McGuire huddle together in the back of the vacant dining room. They speak in hushed tones. Pass the oh, did you see the Liberty oh, Bell? that one, the one that's a Yeah, song. it's shaped just like a bell. McGuire says he's just returned from a long holiday in Europe. How do you afford all this, McGuire? You earn a hundred bucks a week. My friends are real generous. Sent me overseas for a little rest and, you know, a little, uh, fascism research. Like you do. There's this new fella, Hitler. Ever heard of him? 
fabulous. And in Italy, Mussolini pays the veterans so he can depend on him when there's trouble, no questions asked. Not that that system would work in America. We need a more dependable model. So eventually I got to France and it was there, I told my guys, there I found exactly the type of organization we should have. It's called Croix de Feu. That's Cross of Fire. Sounds fancier if you say Croix de Feu. Agreed. That's the name of a French vets group with around 150,000 members. They wear suits and armbands, the whole nine. Their politics are far right of far right. So you want to bring this cross of fire concept to our boys in the U.S.? Hmm. Just out of curiosity, while we wait for the shrimp, what would you and your friends do with this thing if you got it up and running? They'll support the president, of course. Smedley can't believe his ears. Huh? For months, McGuire, his benefactors, and their ilk have opposed Roosevelt, the so-called socialist. They refer to him as the, and this is a quote, cripple in the White House. What does Roosevelt need these guys for, and, and what do we need Roosevelt for? Smedley, we gotta get this country back on track, don't you see that? We gotta make sure the presidency operates the way a presidency ought to operate. Is the purpose of this organization to scare the president? No, 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 we wanna help the president. Poor guy, he's tired, he's overworked. You can see it in his stupid long face. We need a secretary of general affairs, like an assistant president. America will go along with it. After all, we've got the newspapers. Oh. I just got another idea. Seems like you got a lot of ideas all of a sudden. We'll start a campaign that Roosevelt's health is failing and win over their sympathy. So you're just gonna put somebody in that you can manipulate and the president is just gonna kiss babies and dedicate bridges? President isn't gonna go along with this plan? Oh yes he will. And we want you to run our organization. <laughs> Pardon? Will Smedley go along with the idea? Will the plan to stage a coup on the Roosevelt White House succeed? Will the hot honey garlic shrimp live up to Smedley's expectations? That one I'll answer right now. Absolutely. Next time on Let's Start a Coup. We travel to the smoke-filled room to meet the would-be puppet masters of this burgeoning conspiracy. Who are they exactly? What do they want? And why do they think Smedley Butler will be the perfect face for their fascist revolution? Just my natural masculine appeal, I reckon. Credits, lady? What do you think? I think it's time for the credits. Oh, yeah. Okay. For real this time. Let's Start a Coup is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts. Our hosts are Alex French and Ben Bolin. The show is written by Alex French, with additional writing by Joe Kenosian. Original music and scoring by Joe Kenosian. Character voices by Joe Kenosian. Um, he's hogging the credits again. Somebody please stop him. Edelis Perez is our producer. I'm also the credits lady. Amelia Brock is our senior producer. Sound design, scoring, mixing, and mastering by Alexander Overington. Story editing by Lacey Roberts. Fact checking by Austin Thompson. Sean Riggins is our recording engineer. Recorded at Toon Welders in Atlanta, Georgia. Executive producers are Jason English, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. Special thanks to Ethan Trex. Clips courtesy of the National Archives and Records Administration. If you're enjoying the show, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. And make it a good one, you monsters. We deserve it. 
Tune in next time for Let's Start a Coup. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.